cannot tremble with indignation at the idea that the man that blew the whistle on the war crimes is in Belmarsh and the war criminals are on the BBC and ITV and raking in millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds. Anton Karras uh, theme song from The Third Man. And at the very top uh, is uh, my guest for today, and that's George Galloway, a uh, real firebrand of a speaker. That speech was at St. Pancras Church in London. When I was there uh, for the Assange trial back in February, on February 25th, he and Craig Murray, who's been on this show many times, both spoke and brought down the house like George just did, as you can see at the beginning of this show. And uh, I didn't make it that day because I uh, took a trip to a place called the Great Harry, which is something I'll talk about some other day. And I wasn't feeling well on the 26th. But uh, at any rate, uh, George Galloway um, is the host of a fantastic radio show, folks. Uh, first of all, he's a parliamentarian for many years, 18, 20 years. I, his career, there's no way I would be able to give him a proper introduction because just look him up and you can see what a task it would be to really uh, lay it out in, in an intro, uh, all of the accomplishments by uh, this great, great, great uh, ex-parliamentarian and radio show host right now. It's my favorite radio show. It's, uh, it's on Sunday. Uh, it's the mother of all talk shows, and it's actually seven days a week, which he will talk about. He's also the uh, author of um, uh, Mr. Galloway Goes to Washington, uh, I'm Not the Only One, and uh, the Fidel Castro Handbook, which I've got to get. And he's the uh, producer of this and narrator of this uh, documentary, uh, which is called uh, The Killing of Tony Blair which I've got to see. And he's also the producer or the narrator or both of a new documentary called uh, Killing Kelly. At any rate, see, just that little bit there took me about five minutes. George Galloway, thank you for, uh, and he's a former host at WBAI, folks, uh, at, when it was at 120 uh, Wall Street in the day. Welcome, uh, George uh, Galloway, and thank you for um, sharing some time with us. Thank you for that beautiful introduction, Randy. Uh, and Killing Kelly has nothing to do with your wonderful producer, uh, Kelly Lane, of course. It's uh, David Kelly, Dr. David Kelly, about whom more later, no doubt. Um, I, I was uh, a member of parliament for almost 30 years, in fact, but I have always been a writer of columns and books, and latterly, I've gotten into making films. So. You could say it's the full spectrum. Yeah, well, listen, as part of that whole uh, Scottish uh, Enlightenment, you know, heritage, you know, you go back, David Hume, you have, uh, you have uh, Adam Smith, you have uh, Carlyle, and all of these other productive uh, Scots from the, from the Scottish Enlightenment that did so many things, which is what you do. You know, it's just amazing. You know, I'm I just, I, I, every 
every Scot that I've interviewed is really brilliant. It has a very long history of great education. Like you're from Dundee. Can you tell us a little bit about your education? Well, uh, Scottish people have definitely uh, yielded uh, or wielded rather disproportionate uh, influence in the world. There are only five and a half million of us in Scotland, although there are far more in the United States. And we played a significant uh, role in the building of the United States. Uh, Donald Trump shouldn't be held against us, uh, even though his mother was, of course, Scottish. Uh, it's, it's partly the, the, the work ethic, I think, although I'm not a Protestant, uh, I've always had the work ethic. And I think that uh, Scottish people work hard. It's quite dark, quite gloomy, quite cold. Uh, so uh, working is a, a, bit of, a bit of a relief, a bit of light relief. We never had the option of uh, pavement culture uh, or, or sitting out eating uh, Mediterranean uh, lentils. Uh, so uh, uh, getting into hard work and keeping it up is definitely a, a significant part of, of my life. Uh, I come from uh, the city of Dundee, as you say, but actually a village outside it, almost entirely composed of Irish immigrants. So I'm from a Scottish-Irish background. The Irish part gives me my anti-colonial, anti-imperialist uh, turn of mind, the Scottish part, uh, as I say, the, the, the hard work ethic. Uh, and in our village, everyone had an Irish name, an Irish accent, and went to the very Irish local Catholic church. Um, and so I was, uh, I came from the meanest of streets. Uh, I've got to tell you, Randy, you would not, you would not recognize the circumstances in which, into which I was born. I literally lived first five years of my life in an attic, a sloping roofed attic uh, with no toilet or bathroom, of course, outside toilet. Uh, and in fact, there was no room in the sloping roof space for a cot. So as a baby, I slept in a drawer. I'm not making that up. Uh, it was a terrible slum, uh, which was eventually knocked down and then we got a brand new municipal house. Uh, I don't know what you call them there. I don't know, a project maybe, but right. it, uh, it was uh, a transformational to have an inside toilet uh, and to have a bedroom, even though I had to share it with my then, uh, uh, my by then uh, brother and sister. Um, but it, it definitely marked a big change in my life to move from the old slum territory uh, into new municipal housing. And in that street in which I lived, there was a brand new school. At the top of it was a brand new factory, an American factory, National Cash Register out of Dayton, Ohio, uh, that had been ordered to go there by the British government. And my father worked there. At the other end of the street, there wasn't just a free doctor. I know that's not uh, something you've yet achieved in the United States, it was what we called the clinic, which gave you free uh, orange juice, free cod liver oil, and free malt to build you up. Uh, I always say I need to stop taking that now. Uh, so it, it was, this was 1959, 1960. Uh, it was really uh, like uh, 
moving from darkness into light to move into that uh, street of brand new council houses. Uh, George, uh, obviously you come from uh, working class roots. Your parents are both, they both work like my parents. I come from working class roots. Uh, how uh, did the, growing up uh, with hardworking parents like that uh, influence your politics? Everything, everything, Randy. Uh, my, my father was uh, a branch official of the Amalgamated Engineering Union. Uh, he was uh, a militant trade unionist. My mother was Irish and therefore filled with the stories of, uh, of uh, British occupation of Ireland and the struggle against it. Uh, so I, I grew up uh, with absolutely nothing. I mean nothing uh, materially, uh, but, uh, but rich in every conceivable way otherwise. Uh, a, a loving, stable, two-parent family uh, which encouraged reading and discussed uh, world events. So when I was a kid at school, I was the one who, uh, the only one usually, who knew who the president of Uganda was uh, or what the latest uh, struggles in, in South America were. Uh, we, we discussed the world, we discussed politics all the time and I, I became active in politics literally at primary school in short trousers. I was fighting elections and, uh, and uh, going to meetings. I joined the Labour Party at 13. You're supposed to be 15. Uh, but uh, thankfully then, uh, I looked older than my years, a process which has thankfully gone into reverse. You um, started out, yes, at 13. I was going to ask you about that. And then you were the youngest um, uh, I think it was Secretary of the Labour Party in Dundee, was that it? Um, and then you the went youngest on. ever uh, in Britain. I was 18 when I was the Secretary of the uh, Dundee Labour Party, two constituencies. I was the youngest ever Chairman of the whole Labour Party in Scotland at the age of 26. That will certainly never be beaten because young people don't join the Labour Party anymore, let alone be allowed to be uh, the Chairman. Um, I was kind of famous from my teenage years, locally, I mean, uh, in, in my city and region. And then, I, I mean, I was very famous in Scotland before I was 25. Right. Well, listen, and then you went on, I think in 1987, your first term in Parliament. Can, can talk about that a little bit, George. And then uh, most Americans don't know how it works or the parliamentary system uh, you know, how you're able to be one of the candidates. How, how do you go through that process? And how does it... Yeah, well, it's like a primary. Um, I had tried for safer seats where a Labour victory was uh, all but guaranteed, but I was unsuccessful in those. And I was finally successful in being picked to stand against one of the biggest figures in post-war British politics, a man called... Roy Jenkins, who had been the president of the European Union. He had been the chancellor of the Exchequer, that's the finance secretary. He'd been the home secretary uh, in charge of interior affairs. He was a huge, huge figure. And I guess they were happy for me to contest that one because they didn't think that I would win. Uh, but I did and thereby dumped unceremoniously uh, his uh, big 
well-upholstered rear end into the House of Lords, for which he later had the grace to thank me, because the House of Lords is uh, much more uh, convivial and less hardworking a place than the House of Commons. Uh, so I was 32 then. I was elected for the first time. I was elected then uh, three, four times in Scotland, in Glasgow, in that constituency. And then Tony Blair expelled me from the Labour Party uh, because of my opposition to the war in Iraq. And he abolished the constituency, just in case. Uh, so I then moved to the east end of London, uh, where I stood as an independent and defeated another big Labour figure uh, in that constituency, which isn't very easy to do, to win as an independent uh, against the big parties. Uh, and then later in 2012, I stood again as an independent and defeated Labour again in another city. So I've been elected six times um, uh, in two countries, Scotland and England, and in four different cities. Uh, and uh, believe it or not, I'm, I'm trying again, uh, Randy. So the yes. next time you talk to me, I, I'm, I might even be back in the House of Commons. I'm well, you're, you're, you founded and you're, you're the um, uh, I, you're the head of the or co-founded and you're the head of the uh, Workers Party, uh, which uh, it seems to be uh, snowballing and doing very well. Uh, what uh, what prompted you uh, to form this new party? Well, I knew that uh, Jeremy Corbyn, with whom I'd sat in Parliament for almost 30 years, uh, I knew that his leadership would not last much longer. Uh, and so exactly a year ago, this week, uh, I launched the Workers' Party of Britain, figuring that Mr. Corbyn would lose the general election last December, as he went on to do, uh, and that there would then be a huge purge conducted by the Blairite right wing of the Labour Party against Mr. Corbyn's supporters. As it's turned out, the purge has also included Mr. Corbyn himself. He now has been booted out of the Labour Party in the way that I was uh, back in 2003. So I knew that there would be a steady stream uh, of uh, ex-Labour militants uh, who could no longer live with uh, a Blairite Labour Party, which I was perfectly sure would be the result uh, of, uh, of Mr. Corbyn's defeat. And uh, every one of those calls has gone right so far. Uh, in less than a year, so it's not a year until later this week, uh, we now have almost 70 branches we have thousands of members, well over 4,000 members, uh, and uh, our name is known uh, everywhere. Our iconography is good, our design, our style of work, if you like, is good. Uh, we've drawn literally millions of people to our public meetings online because, of course, this year has been a wipeout for street political activity and normal public meetings. Uh, which I would normally have been going around the country addressing. So we went online, we were ahead of the curve, and uh, something like three million people have watched those speeches of mine uh, on behalf of the Workers' Party in a year. Uh, so uh, I think the future looks good for us. It will be a long march uh, because uh, 
parties don't usually die immediately. There's a lingering period in which uh, uh, the old order is dying, but the new order is still struggling to be born. And that would be the phase that we are now in. Uh, but I'm perfectly sure by the time I hang up my boots, the Workers' Party uh, in formerly strong Labour areas uh, will be the Labour Party reborn, as it were. And I think that that was necessary. It's a process, by the way, I commend to the United States uh, because the Democratic Party, just like today's Labour Party, is not fit for purpose, in my view. And uh, the United States badly needs a people's party that will rally the blue collar, the working class, uh, whether they voted for Trump or whether they voted for the Greens or whatever. Uh, people uh, have a need. Every, every country needs a real party of labor. And the United States doesn't have that. And until we came along, neither did Britain. Well, well you know, George, uh, the, um, it, it is a long struggle. Uh, and I'm glad that you've got that uh, stick-to-itiveness uh, in your, in your uh, nature. I mean, you know, I, you are, as am I, a fan of uh, Che Guevara. And, you know, he and uh, Fidel struggled for many years before that revolution was completed. So, you know, it is a struggle. And if you're going to go through the system, it's going to be just as long. And I, I think that what you have there, and plus you have um, a different kind of system. The parliamentary system, I think, lends itself to uh, a third party, a fourth party, or whatever, whereas the U.S. really doesn't. It's very difficult to break in. The Green Party, Libertarian Party, they can never really get started for some reason. It's a, it's a, it's a duopoly. Uh, and uh, I don't see it getting any better. Do you? I mean, you've, you, you're a very uh, acute uh, follower of this uh, system, and you've analyzed it very well on your radio show. Well, I, I'm the only person in the whole of British history that has won two parliamentary seats uh, as an independent. So that shows you how difficult it is even here, never mind in the United States. If it was... In Europe, it would be much easier because they have a proportional representation system. So if the Workers' Party had 5% of the vote, which we very definitely would have as a minimum, then we'd have 5% of the members of parliament, which would be 33 members of parliament. And with 33 members of parliament, you make a much disproportionate splash uh, on the political scene. And with 33, you can easily grow uh, uh, to far more than 5%. So uh, the European proportional representation system is, uh, is much more conducive to a break from the duopoly. I mean, my wife is from the Netherlands. Uh, in her country's parliament, uh, the Dog Lovers Party have got members in the parliament. The old age pensioners party have got members in the parliament. A Trotskyite party has members in the parliament. So it's much easier in Europe than it is in Britain and probably easier in Britain than it is in the United States. But there's no alternative. If there was an alternative, 
uh, I, I'd urge you to take it, but there isn't really. I think it's abundantly clear now, after what happened to Bernie Sanders, not once, but twice, uh, that uh, no, no breakthrough, no breakout uh, will ever happen in the Democratic Party, transforming Absolutely. it into what once perhaps it dreamt of being a real people's party. So um, there's no choice really, but to start at the beginning. As I say, it's a long march, but the journey of a thousand uh, miles begins with the first step, and I urge you to take it. Well, you know, George, uh, I think one of the reasons why your party is so successful is that you've been able to convey this message online and with your radio show. What's in this country, uh, the Democrats don't have any access, or they could if they want, but there's no interest in any kind of, um, you know, like Democratic radio. There is Republican radio, conservative radio, um, and it's, it's for some reason, there is no uh, vehicle here for the left. I mean, there's a vehicle, but they haven't been able to exploit it uh, in this country the way you have in your country. You really are a, a rare bird uh, to have such a following uh, on with your radio show seven days a week, six, seven days a week. Uh, but right wing dominates it here. And I don't know, what is your secret, George? Uh, why is your show so popular and it bucks the trend in this country when it comes to radio? Well, uh, you, your words uh, that they could have it if they wanted it are the operative ones here because uh, you and I are doing it right now. You've built a following. You've built a show. Uh, your WBAI work is one thing, but you, you have your own portals. And that's because you had the nous and the style, if I may say so, to do it. And style is very, very important. Uh, Left-wing radio would make me run a mile, never mind uh, Joe and Joanne public. Uh, the deadly earnestness of it all, uh, the political correctness of it all, uh, the monomaniacal uh, obsession with identity politics and woke politics and uh, all the things that divide people. I'd be looking for ways to unite people, not to divide them. I'm not interested in any slip on personal pronouns that you might make or the nuances of your attitude to transgenderism or uh, homosexuality or any of these things. I'm looking for ways uh, in my work to unite people. And the best way to unite people is around the one identity shared by all people, black, white, uh, gay, straight, men, women, young, old, and that is their class, their relationship to wealth and power. Uh, I, I meet people all the time in Britain, and I'd meet them every minute in the United States, who don't regard themselves as working class. But what does working class mean? It means that you depend on the price of your work uh, to live. And if you lost your job, you lost your wages, lost your salary, you wouldn't be able to live. You have nothing else to live on but the earnings uh, of your own labor. And 
therefore, I concentrate on trying to uh, bring people together. And you can see, best of all, in my polls. Uh, I hold a couple of Twitter opinion polls every Sunday night on my Mother of All talk shows. And people are amazed at the results of those polls. And I, I, I pick the questions deliberately, give the options deliberately. And they show that people are watching me, listening to me from all parts of the political spectrum. So I ask a question, which is in a way a trick question. Uh, what do you think about Millwall fans, hard, white, working-class football fans, booing the taking of the knee before the Millwall game on Saturday? The vast majority of my listeners last night, Sunday night, uh, were sympathetic to the booing, and yet they are listening to me, watching me. And you know, as a regular viewer, listener, uh, my politics are not soft. Uh, they are not uh, ambiguous in any way. No. And yet I'm attracting vast numbers of people from all different parts of the political spectrum. Now, other left-wing radio uh, and other left-wing media outlets have not been able to do that. Uh, they have started out small and got smaller. Uh, they have started out with schism and promptly split into the People's Liberation Front of Judea, the Judean People's Liberation Front, and so on. Uh, they, have, uh, they, 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 they look for ways uh, to maximize disagreement. The narcissism of the small difference is so prevalent on the left that it's no wonder they haven't been able to build uh, a radio show. But uh, my show on a Sunday is now watched watched by more than a million people every wow. Sunday. That's and amazing, listen. George. George, uh, we're going to have to um, take a break here. Uh, for those who, who want to listen to the rest or watch the rest of this, uh, go to Assange's Countdown to Freedom uh, com. It will be on later today. The The rest of this, this is only a 30-minute a, a program, uh, and we have a lot more to talk about uh, with uh, George Galloway. You've been listening, for those who are going out right now, uh, you've been listening to Randy Critical Live on the Fly with George Galloway today, uh, WBAI.org, and uh, support this program. Uh, give to WBAI.org. All right, we'll be right back after... Um, uh, a quick uh, break uh, for those who are going to continue. Uh, this is Bob Dylan. Falls down in Mississippi Not so long ago When the young boys from Chicago town Walked in the southern door This boy's fateful tragedy He should all Remember well the color of his skin was black and his name was Emmett Till. Some men they dragged him to a barn and there they beat him up. They said they had a reason, but I disremember what. 
They tortured him and did some things too evil to repeat. There was screaming sounds inside the barn. There was laughing sounds out on the street. That was Bob Dylan. Um, I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico, live on the flight and Assange countdown to freedom. Uh, we uh, are now in the second half of our interview with the great George Galloway, former parliamentarian, uh, author, uh, documentary producer, uh, a man for all seasons, George Galloway. And uh, I'm not, I don't want to confuse you with Thomas More, but uh, you know you are a man for all seasons. And I really appreciate um, you know all of the work that you have. Um, done in your lifetime it's just it's amazing george now i want to go back to the very beginning of the show here because we have not talked about uh, julian assange that speech that you gave at uh, saint pancras church that happened in the middle of the first half of this uh persecution by these uh crown prosecutor services and this horrendous judge uh Bethesar, is that her name uh and uh, that's been that's been like eight months. So uh, now we have the second phase and uh, we're going to get a decision soon. Uh, where, where are you optimistic? Uh, I'm, not optimistic of- uh, I'm not optimistic about this level uh, of the court. I'm more optimistic about higher levels when this matter goes to appeal, if it goes against us in just a few weeks time now, uh, because at a higher level, Uh, Well, let me put it this way. You might find this shocking. I would take my chances in front of the British judiciary before any other institution in Britain, before the media, before politicians, before the deep state and so on. I, I happen to think that the British judiciary at the upper levels is maybe the last uncorrupted part Uh, of the British state. And I'm talking relatively, of course. Uh, Judges come from a rarefied uh, circle. They are not elected. They can't be removed. Uh, But therein, that last point, uh, lies something of their independence. They cannot be removed. uh, And they generally have a care, which Judge Barrister appeared not to. Uh, They generally have a care as to how things look in the jurisprudential record. And something that is such a monstrous affront to anything called justice as the process by which Julian Assange has been persecuted, not prosecuted, persecuted, and maybe even potentially crucified is, uh, is a stain, huge stain on British judicial history. And I, have a slight feeling that uh, a higher level of court would find that. However, the real problem, Randy, is can Julian stay alive long enough for that process to uh, be uh, wholly uh, exhausted? Because Julian Assange has several, multiple underlying conditions He's locked up in a prison that is chock full of coronavirus. And they are now, believe it or not, moving people with the coronavirus from other parts of the prison into 
his prison block, almost as if they wished that they could be rid of this troubling priest uh, by having him die uh, of the coronavirus without having to deport him to 175 years in a supermax in Colorado. Uh, and if that happens, and one cannot, I wouldn't bet against it happening, then that stain that I mentioned earlier will be across the whole of Britain for the whole of time. Uh, because Julian Assange is a world historic figure. He's the world's most important political prisoner. And if he is judicially murdered uh, by the prison authorities acting on the orders of the state in Britain, we'll never live it down. I uh, totally agree uh, with you. You saw uh, and you commented uh, on the last proceeding, those two, three weeks that took place in, in September. What did you make of, of that entire process, uh, George? Well, it was at the Old Bailey, which is the old lady of uh, English justice. And that old lady must have been mightily ashamed. Uh, she must have been hiding her eyes from what was going on under her roof and in the name of justice. To call it a farce would be far too like-minded. It was a grotesque tragedy, a grotesque perversion of the course of justice. Everything about it was an abuse of process. The way that witnesses were handled, the way that Julian was handled, the way that the defense was treated, and the way that this case wasn't just thrown out of court, as in any court worthy of the name, it would have been as soon as it was acknowledged that Julian Assange's privileged conversations with his lawyers over years were spied upon by a Spanish company working for uh, moguls in the United States who were a cutout for the American intelligence uh, uh, apparatus. As soon as that was acknowledged, that case should have been thrown out. No court anywhere else on anything else would have continued to try a man once it was acknowledged that those seeking to prosecute him already knew everything he'd ever said to his lawyers in legally privileged conversations. That simply would have dispensed of the matter. Whatever he was accused of, even murder, the case would have died there and then. Because, of course, you can have no justice if the state is spying on your lawyers' conversations with you. That much, surely, is axiomatic. Well, you know, you're talking about UC Global, the Spanish firm uh, that got money from Sheldon Adelson, the, uh, who I actually worked for when I worked in Vegas back in 90 to 92 at the Sands Hotel when he first bought it. Uh, and plus, I was spied on as well. When I was there visiting Julian Assange in uh, September and in November of 2000. Me too, yeah. Huh? Me too. You were I in there as well. Yeah, well, they've got, they've, got the, they've got the videos of me. They've got the videos of Pamela Anderson in the, in the lavatory. 
Oh my goodness, I did not know that. They had they had a camera in the lavatory. Yeah. It's pretty sick what they did. And you're right. They should have just uh, tossed it out. And that, uh, uh, many reasons. Why are they, what, uh, you know, what's the underlying reason? What's, what's the driving force? Where is the hidden hand uh, in this overall persecution of Julian Assange? Who's pulling the strings? Uh, well, the U.S. empire is pulling the strings. And the rest of us are all to one extent or another, some nakedly so, entirely so, some less nakedly and not as entirely. Uh, we are all in thrall uh, to the United States empire. And Britain, uh, which uh, uh, pretends uh, to believe that it has a special relationship with the United States, is not willing to acknowledge that it's the kind of special relationship that Miss Lewinsky had uh, with President Clinton, uh, demeaning and degrading, and with the junior partner always on their knees. It is uh, a national shame. Uh, and we are constantly, like uh, the weakling that runs along behind the school bully, uh, seeking to ingratiate ourselves with the school bully. Uh, but the school bully is the United States of America, I'm sorry to say. Well, George, there, look, Julian and WikiLeaks exposed war crimes, uh, torture, and uh, all of this shenanigans that went on with Cablegate. Uh, but the Brits have, not just the US, but the Brits uh, have a, you know, a dog in this fight as well, because they too have been exposed. They were a participant in all of these crimes. There are people there whether it be BAE, British Patrol, I don't know who, but there must be some entities there that uh, would like to see Julian Assange uh, silenced. Well, yes, and uh, not just Julian Assange silenced, but everyone silenced ever after uh, by virtue of the example that has been made of Julian Assange. Uh, that's true. Uh, Britain is a co-conspirator, co-accused, uh, of the 21st century's war crimes uh, in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, uh, and in Yemen. Uh, we are uh, co-criminals. Um, you, you are the, the, the bigger criminal, obviously, uh, but that's not a defense of the junior criminal. And when the junior criminal is committing her crimes, uh, in order to ingratiate herself to the bigger criminal, that uh, doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. You know, uh, Tony Blair, you've called for the prosecution of Tony Blair, and I believe Jack Straw, uh, the uh, former what, Home Secretary or Foreign home Secretary. secretary. Yes, uh, Jack Straw. And foreign, and foreign Secretary. Right. So you've asked for the prosecution. There was a commission studying their role. They misled the British public, and it led to a lot of deaths of British uh, soldiers, as well as a million I Iraqi citizens. Uh, why hasn't uh, Tony Blair been prosecuted? Well, not only has he not been prosecuted, he's now worth 400 million pounds. Uh, he has been richly rewarded, not prosecuted, uh, for the crimes that he committed. And uh, he's not an old man yet. Uh, he's, uh, he's actually marginally younger than me. 
uh, and uh, he's got a lot of earning uh, still ahead of him. So uh, it is one of the reasons why uh, the British state today stands in such opprobrium, uh, such lack of credibility, uh, that nobody believes them even when they're telling the truth. And that uh, plays out in all kinds of sometimes banal ways. Uh, if the British government told me uh, that today was Monday, I, I really would have to check. If they told the, uh, the people uh, that they must do this or that in the teeth of the coronavirus, a very substantial number of people are no longer predisposed to believe them. Uh, so the state has suffered a deeply damaging collapse in credibility, in believability, as a result of the lies that were told by Mr. Blair to uh, hoodwink the country into a devastating war, which is still, uh, uh, still uh, uh, sending its shockwaves around the world. You know, when, when some hideous, ghastly, grotesque uh, Islamist murder takes place, uh, say, outside a school in Paris, uh, this is one of the shockwaves of the, uh, the Bush and Blair War. The radicalization, fanaticization, extremization of the Muslim mass uh, by this war uh, on fake pretenses uh, should not be underestimated. The youngest, my, my youngest child is not yet four months old. Her whole life will be overshadowed by the repercussions of the Bush and Blair War of 2003. Imagine that. And she, God willing, will live until the end of this century and beyond. Uh, but her whole life uh, will be under the shadow uh, of the the devastating repercussions of this great crime. Well, George, I must say you were an early critic, which is the reason why you got the bums rush out of the Labour Party uh, by Tony Blair. And uh, 2003, I mean, you were out there up front, just like you have been out there for Julian Assange uh, from the very outset, one of the earlier uh, supporters of Julian Assange. But uh, I want, you came to D.C. to talk about this, and it's in your book, Mr. Galloway Goes to Washington. We're going to play that clip. Here's a little a clip of when you appeared at uh, in front of a, a Senate uh, committee in D.C. in 2005. I gave my heart and soul to stop you committing the disaster that you did commit in invading Iraq. And I told the world that your case for the war was a pack of lies. Senator, this is the mother of all smoke screens. You are trying to divert attention from the crimes that you supported, from the theft of billions of dollars of Iraq's wealth. Have a look at the real oil for food scandal. Have a look at the 14 months you were in charge of Baghdad, the first 14 months, when $8.8 .8 billion of Iraq's wealth went missing on your watch. Have a look at the real scandal breaking in the newspapers today, revealed 
in the earlier testimony in this committee that the biggest sanctions busters were not me or Russian politicians or French politicians. The real sanctions busters were your own companies with the connivance of your own government. All right, so George, uh, how did you feel that day when you appeared before that committee? It was, it was my best day uh, so far. Uh, I, I said at the time, God gave me wings that day, and I really felt I was flying. I didn't know, of course, how well until I got out of the committee room, and a black janitor uh, literally rushed up to me and gave me a high five, the first high five I'd ever had, uh, and said, way to go, man. You just sent George Bush back to his ranch. This was an employee in the Senate building. And then when I got out, I realized uh, just how widely around the world it had been telecast live and what people's response to it was. Uh, and so uh, ex-Senator Norman Coleman uh, did me a real good turn uh, by uh, causing me to be there that day. Um, I was a boxer when I was young, Randy, and, uh, and so I knew already uh, that there is a moment in a fight uh, when you can tell from your opponent's eyes uh, that they no longer wish to be there. Uh, they wish they could be anywhere else but there. Uh, at least in boxing, you can throw in the towel uh, or your second can throw in the towel and you can get some relief. But there was no relief that day for Norman Coleman. Yeah, they were slinking out of there when you got out, uh, when you finished. That was an amazing, amazing uh, day. Uh, George. As George Bush would put it, they misunderestimated me. <laughs> they certainly did. It's called Mr. Galloway Goes to Washington. It's a book. Now, you got a new book out, uh, George. Can you tell us about your, your latest book and how people can Yeah, I mean, I'm all the time writing. I set aside uh, two hours every morning to write. And this very day, uh, I have published my very first children's book. It's called Red Malacca, The Good Pirate. All my children, I have six children by the grace of God, and all of them have loved pirates. The, and many parents will empathize with this. The problem with pirates is they're really not a good role model. You know, they, they're drinking rum all the time and cutting people with their cutlasses and so on, stealing things. It's not what you want, want your children uh, to grow up to be. Uh, so I came up with the idea of a kind of Robin Hood pirate, uh, a good pirate who robs the rich to help the poor. Uh, he robs the big pirates as a small pirate, and he gives the ill-gotten gains of the big pirates back to the people the big pirates stole them from in the first place. Uh, I think people are going to like it. Uh, if you follow me and you've got children or grandchildren, nieces or nephews, uh, I think you'll find it well worth the very small cover price. Uh, and there will be a series uh, of these books. Uh, but I think the characters I've drawn and the plots that I've come up with uh, are all moral, good, but highly entertaining. And that last point is also very, very important.
Well, listen, I love pirates and kids love pirates. I grew up near Disneyland in California. My favorite part of Disneyland was Pirates of the Caribbean. So yeah. uh, they're, they're, there's something amazing about it. The Crimson Pirate of Burt Lancaster, one of my favorite films. Uh, so, you know, these Errol Flynn films about pirates, uh, something, you know, that's romantic about yeah, pirates. It's been enduring uh, for, you know, the best part of a century. People have been fixated on pirates. My six-year-old son uh, in the car yesterday asked me to play on the hi-fi in the car uh, the, the music from Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, I would never let him watch Pirates of the Caribbean at such a tender age, but he knew the music and the, uh, the, 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 the atmosphere or the, the ambience created by it is, of course, about life on the ocean wave. Uh, and uh, that's what my Red Malacca books uh, seek to recapture. How do people um, find out about the, these books online? Is it georgegalloway.com? Is that it? Yes, georgegalloway.com. And there's a shop and you can buy. I, I'm surprised you haven't got my Fidel Castro book yet, Randy. Uh, I'll send it to you. You will? Gratis. I will for sure. Uh, someone's listening right now who will uh, ensure that that is done. Okay. Uh, because uh, that was a labor of love. Uh, I spent in my life, I'm so fortunate to be able to say hundreds of hours with Fidel Castro. You did? Hundreds of hours. Well, He's look what I have here, George. All right. Oh, yes. Very good. All right. The Madres de Plaza de Mayo in Argentina gave me this when I was in Buenos wow. Aires way back in 2005. Wow. All right. So Absolutely. I want that book, George. I'm really excited. Also on uh, Twitter. It's is it way now over the Atlantic. <laughs> OK. All right. So let me add, um, on uh, Twitter. It's George Galloway at George Galloway. Is that it? Yeah. Blue blue tick. Don't. Not to be confused by, by imposters. Okay, so all right, so George, yeah, go to the blue tick, George Galloway. Also on Facebook, where you can also on YouTube, Facebook, Facebook yeah. and YouTube, where you can watch your uh, radio show, George. It's just George Galloway yeah. on both the YouTube yes. channel. Yes. All right. Well, um, I, the pirates and and uh, Fidel Castro on the same uh, the same paragraph here. We are talking with George Galloway, uh, who uh, is a remarkable figure. Uh, what a history you have, George, really. I mean, someone, who do you want to play you in the movie? Well, once upon a time, I was a friend of Sean Penn. Uh, uh, he uh, reached out to me when I was touring the United States. One of the consequences of, uh, of uh, Norm, Senator, ex-Senator Norman Coleman's invitation uh, was that uh, he, he built an audience for me in America. So I would tour the United States all over, giving speeches. Uh, and uh, Sean Penn reached out to me, and we hung out uh, for quite some time together. Uh, he told me that Warren Beatty was a fan of mine, uh, and I should go to lunch with him in, in Beverly Hills, which I did. And when, when Warren Beatty opened the door to me, in my accent, perfectly captured, he was reciting back to me the speech that I made at the Senate. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, um, the famous uh, Woody Allen quote, when asked about reincarnation, he said, if there is reincarnation, I want to come back as Warren Beatty's fingertips. Well, I would like either Warren Beatty or Sean Penn to play me in the movie. Wow, that's great. 
Uh, I uh, knew Warren Beatty back uh, back in the eighties. Uh, A great man. I, great yes, man. I uh, used to uh, do for him scenes from the movie Reds. I did Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill. You know, you and Jack Reed have a lot of middle class dreams for two radicals. You know, he liked that. All right, I don't want to get into that. Beautifully rendered, Randy. Beautifully yeah, rendered. They, he, uh, it's a great film. Uh, I can't even do it. I can't handle the truth. All right. So, yeah, um, I, I want to get back to this movie that's just coming out as well, which is Killing Kelly. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about Killing Kelly, which is coming out soon, I believe, a documentary? Yes, very soon. Uh, my first film was The Killings of Tony Blair. And this is, in a way, a part two, because uh, Dr. David Kelly uh, was killed as a direct result of uh, Tony Blair's Iraq war. And many of the, uh, the dramatis personae uh, are the same. Uh, Dr. David Kelly was a weapons expert who began to go rogue just as the war began. Uh, by telling journalists that as the most senior British scientist who'd spent years disarming Iraq after the first Gulf War of 1991, uh, he'd spent years destroying weapons of mass destruction and knew, therefore, uh, that uh, Tony Blair was lying uh, about the WMD uh, excuse for the war. Uh, and he appeared in Parliament in a very, very dramatic uh, scene at a committee. He was all over the front pages as a whistleblower. He wrote to his friend, a, a writer on the New York Times, uh, I feel sure that I'm going to be found dead in the woods. And guess what? He was found dead in the woods. You and be there was a completely... Uh, absurd uh, pantomime inquiry into his death, which uh, delivered a verdict of suicide that nobody believed at the time. And there ain't anybody anywhere going to believe it once they've seen my film. We show, at the very least, David Kelly did not commit suicide. Wow. We are talking, we have a few minutes left here with the great George Galloway. Uh, George, I want to get back to your radio show for uh, just a minute, your radio. Just tell us, I want everyone to know every single day that you are on and how people access it. And I mean, I watch Moets on Sunday night, always, and I drive to it. You know, when I'm in California driving up the coast, I listen to right-wing radio stations because I get so mad, but they say things that keep, you know, my interest peak for some reason. Um, yeah, I don't yeah, listen to liberal is. radio shows for some reason because they put me to sleep. Your show, well, I can drive to. You have summed it up uh, in one. Uh, most liberal shows would put you to sleep, and they certainly drive away anyone who's not already signed up to your cause. Uh, uh, populist radio is successful for a reason, uh, because it's popular. It goes out of its way to be popular. So why not have left-wing populism? That's what I try to market. I put my ideas in a popular way. I entertain all contending schools of thought. I turn away no one. I argue with 
everybody who comes on with a different point of view in a respectful way. I don't throw the words ism or phobe uh, or ist at anybody. I, I treat their arguments on their merits. I don't believe that by slapping a label on someone, you close down the debate. You don't. Uh, you merely minimize the number of people taking your side. So uh, here's my American appearances. Five days a week at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time, uh, I'm on In Question uh, with Manila Chan on RT America, followed uh, each week uh, with Rick Sanchez, uh, the news with Rick Sanchez, so week about, always at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, then on a Saturday, I have a show on RT UK called Sputnik, Orbiting the World with me, George Galloway. And on a Sunday, it's a three-hour extravaganza on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Twitch, on Instagram. Three hours. It's the open university of the airwaves. There's no tuition fees, and you're positively encouraged to speak back to the teacher. That would be me. It is really amazing, that show. I mean, it goes by so quickly. The three hours just flies by. I drove uh, upstate the other day, and, you know, I you can – it wasn't live, but, I you know, you go to your Twitter account, and you have a, a video of it, and it's just like all the way up, man. It keeps you entertained. And, and you are really good with your callers. Uh, some people are combative with their callers. You are very respectful and your guests are good, your opening monologue. It really is, uh, I guess it's something that has evolved, the formula that you put together. Yes, yes and uh, partly honed, as you said, in Wall Street uh, with WBAI. What happened is I started on a sports radio late at night called Talk Sport, and it was right after the Iraq War, uh, and I called it, therefore, uh, the the mother of all talk shows, or MOATS, M-O-A-T-S. Uh, and uh, that ran and became a cult radio show on talk sport uh, with views on YouTube in the millions for radio tubes, uh, for, for radio uh, clips on YouTube, millions, just listening to a radio clip, undreamt of. And then uh, they uh, changed the format 24-hour sport, and I moved to WBAI in New York. And women used to call up. Sorry about this, Kelly. Women used to call up and say, I don't have a question, Mr. Galloway, but could you just say the word murder? And I would lean into the microphone, and in my best dark brown voice, I'd say, murder. And they would giggle and run away. Uh, it, it became a bit of a cult on WBAI also. And then it came back uh, to Britain uh, in, on something called talk radio. Then I was fired from talk radio, despite being the top rating show by, by 100 miles. Uh, and RT immediately took on the show. So it goes out on Sputnik Radio right across the world. It goes out on AM across the United States from Burning City to Burning City. And 
in Washington, D.C. on FM 105.5, plus Facebook, YouTube, etc. Well, I hope hopefully this will catapult you back into Parliament. Uh, are you going to are you going to stand uh, for election? I'm standing. I'm standing uh, both for the Scottish Parliament in May, but the Westminster London Parliament also uh, in a by-election, the date of which uh, has yet to be determined. When's he going to call elections? When is Boris Johnson going to call elections, do you think? Uh, he doesn't have to for four years, and he won't. But Boris Johnson might not be there that much longer. Uh, the Conservative Party is ruthless when it comes to dispatching its leaders. Even Mrs. Thatcher, as you may recall, was ruthlessly slain by her own forces, her own troops, uh, when the going got rough. And the going is getting a bit rough now for Boris Johnson. So he may, be, he may be replaced in an internal coup, uh, but the Conservatives will be in power in Britain uh, for another four years, at least. I see. So they're not going to call elections. Uh, uh, no. So you, you'll have to wait. Well, good luck. Um, uh, there's a lot of uh, internal politics in Scotland. Uh, you know, you and Craig Murray have different opinions, and uh, I got to get you two on to debate it. I won't go near it, okay? Because I, you're a friend and he's a friend and I'm way over here and I am not going to piss off either one of you guys, okay? Yeah, so, I'm, I'll just ask Americans, which part of the United States would they be happy to see secede from the USA? i leave it at that. Mississippi, maybe. I'd like to see, or Texas, you know, or Montana, I'd like to see secede from the union. But uh, I understand you both. I want to have you two on for a debate. So we're better informed on it. But uh, that really okay. is a, a um, provincial uh, matter that uh, in, the, in Great Britain. And I'm not going to infuriate either one of you because I frankly don't know, you know. Uh, but you both make great points, and you've had them on your show. I have. And you had a very nice debate about it. He's a good friend of mine, and uh, I admire him greatly. Yes. Uh, we just have a fundamental disagreement on, on nationalism. I hate nationalism, uh, by and large, and I have never known any secession from any country that has worked out well for either of the, of the uh, uh, subsequent countries. So this, I'm you, against breaking up countries in general. Yes. Well, uh, you certainly made some very cogent points uh, during that debate uh, with uh, you. that you opened my eyes because uh, when you guys were talking about, uh, well, Britain has committed all these uh, war crimes, you say, wait a second, Scotland was part of it, right? Scotland. Right, right, right at the heart of it. Yeah, right yeah. at the heart. Yeah. Well, at any rate, uh, I, I uh, am going to, at some point, invite both of you on to have this discussion in a real friendly manner. Uh, and uh, I think it could be interesting. George Galloway, once again, thank you for uh, all that you have done, committing yourself to uh, social, economic justice um, and um, human rights, your, your work on human rights, your, your, your exposing war crimes and torture, uh, your work right now, Palestinians. Uh, you know, I know you went to Beirut and you got that whole arena opened your eyes and then you, uh, your stuff on Yemen right now and, and uh, you know, the atrocities that are being committed there. 
by the Saudis uh, with the help of, of the UK and the US. Uh, it's, it's great that you uh, continue to put your lens on areas that uh, the US really knows, the public knows very little about. So that they should watch your show and become informed. Any last words, uh, George, on um, Julian Assange or anything else before we go? Well, I pray for Julian Assange every night, but that's not enough. Uh, it is vital that we spread the word that who's on trial here is not just Julian Assange, uh, but journalism, broadcasting, freedom of speech, the freedom of the people to know what their government is doing on their dollar are all on trial in the persecution of Julian Assange. And we really, really have to wake up to what might be the slaughter of a man who should be receiving a Nobel Prize, but may instead end up with a 175-year sentence in a supermax in Colorado. If Julian Assange goes down, we all go down. Thank you, George Galloway. You get the last word there and keep up the good work. And we'll be uh, watching you and listening to you seven days a week now, now that I know all of the time uh, slots. George Thank Galloway, much, really terrific, really terrific. Oh,